This week, I want to talk about becoming who we're called to be. So villages should be the places where we are able to become who we're called to be. And the truth is, every single person in this room is called to greatness. I don't know if you knew that, but you are called to greatness. I recently had a taste of greatness at my daughter's sports day. Um, First one I've ever gone to happened just before the summer kicked off. And most mothers, when sports day is coming up, are thinking about the child and how we can prepare this child for the inevitable losing that will happen on sports day, mentally, how we're going to do it emotionally. Most dads are thinking about the dad's race. Now, I arrive at this sports day thinking about the dad's race. I'd worn my best shoes for the dad's race. I had clothing on me that I knew would be okay in the dad's race. But when I got to the sports day, I soon realized that this wasn't like any other sports day I've ever attended before. There weren't any winners It was awful. So the kids are cycling around all these events and it just kept going. Like they'd run 100 metres, they'd go around and run it again. No winners, no losers, didn't matter apparently. So I'm thinking there is no way there's going to be a dad's race at this sports day, which was slightly disappointing to me until my mate Raf turns up. Now Raf, on kind of normal school days, is a quite unassuming man and he rocks up in full lycra with some incredibly nice trainers on and starts doing stretches in front of me. I said, Raph, why are you doing stretches? And he was like, dad's race is coming up. And before, me and John were both there together with our daughters, all the other dads started stretching before this race. And so John and I line up, 40 dads along this start line. And we're talking to each other and we're like, do you think, do you think this is serious? Like, it's always the dilemma. Do you think, like, if we really, because we all know 100 meters, it's one at the start, okay? So the start has to be good. Do we spring out of this and go for it right at the beginning and then have egg on our face when everyone else is jogging, having fun, laughing with each other? Or do we just hold back a little bit and see what's happening? Now, John said he, he needed to hold back for other reasons. I just thought, I'll hold back with you, John. Um, and so get ready, set, go. We launch off and instantly we knew this was a serious race. We knew it was serious because people were dropping left, right, and center. Like, there were dads going down with hamstrings. There were dads, like, twisting their ankles. It was carnage. It was like a war zone. We got to about the middle of the race, and suddenly I realized I'm, I'm top four here, potentially top three. I could go on to win this. And that's when it kicked in, the competitive side of me. I'm not good at many things, but I am fairly fast in a 100-meter sprint. And so I decided to put in that extra 10% that's always required at these moments. And by the end, about 10 meters ago, it's me and this other bloke who I've never talked to, but I see every day. And we've always built up this little bit of a competitive thing without even knowing it. And I'm looking at him and he's looking across at me, 10 meters to go. And I just think, I'm not sure I can do it until he stacks it, hits a bump, completely rolls out, takes out three other men behind him. And I go on to win the race. Now, what I should have done at that moment is turn around and check that this bloke's all right and the other guys. Instead, I did a victory lap. So I took off around the field. I'm high-fiving the kids. I'm high-fiving the teachers. The teaching assistant, who I thought hated me, hugged me. Everyone's cheering. They're chanting my name. Honestly, it felt the best I've ever felt in my life. Um, So that kind of ended and we enjoyed that. The next day, um, usually Hanel takes them to school on Friday. Uh, But I woke up and I said, don't worry, darling. You, you rest up, I'll take the girls to school today. And so I'm walking into school and people are smiling at me and everybody knows my name and <laughs> everyone's looking at me and I get to the door, drop Elia off and there's a teaching assistant there who wasn't at the race. Um, she only comes in on Friday and she goes, Ben, 
I heard that you came runner-up in the race. That's amazing. And it took everything in me, everything not to correct her. Everything in me wanted to correct her. The truth is, we all have delusions of greatness, don't we? This is a huge issue for millennials. Millennials always get a bad rep. I'm about to give them a worse rep, but we all have the same problem. See, the problem for millennials is that our grandparents fought in a war, and understandably, they were obsessed with economic security. And so what they did was they told millennials' parents, and our parents, they told them that they needed to work hard for many years to build a successful, secure, practical career so that they can achieve and enjoy life and fulfill their calling, and they did. And it just so happened to coincide with unprecedented economic prosperity in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And so therefore, for our parents, in, in the whole, their expectations were widely, widely um, exceeded as a generation. So they achieved way more than they actually set out to achieve. And as a result, millennials were brought up with this sense of optimism and this sense of unbounded possibility. And millennials were told things like this, you can be anything you want to be. You just have to dream. And as a result, we felt special. We feel like we're the main character of a very special story. We'll say things like, I suppose I could be president, irregardless of the visa. I suppose I could be president, but is that really the calling on my heart? Is that what I'm really called to do? And we go around in circles and we never really achieve anything. The result was and is that we've quickly become incredibly disillusioned with our calling. Someone clever who's a professor wrote this. He said, Generation Y's unrealistic expectations, a strong resistance toward accepting negative feedback and an inflated view of oneself. A great source of frustration for people with a strong sense of entitlement is unmet expectations. They often feel entitled to a level of respect and rewards that aren't in line with their actual ability and effort levels, and so they might not get the level of respect and rewards they're expecting. What's he saying there? He's saying if we have these aspirations, if we have these expectations, and the reality doesn't meet those expectations, we feel miserable. We feel like we've not achieved in life. We feel like we haven't achieved anything and achieved greatness. And it's easy, isn't it, to give millennials a hard time. The baby boomers, so the parents of the millennials, were brilliantly materialistic when it came to greatness because they were told if you can just earn this amount of money, if you can achieve this kind of success in materialistic terms, then you will live a fulfilled life. Then you would have achieved your calling. And they became great at it as a result. The more money, the better your career, the more you're able to achieve, the better house that you live in, the more successful, the more great, the better your calling has been in life. The problem was, because of economic prosperity, they had a taste of what it felt like, and it left them wanting more. It left them feeling miserable. Here's a quote from someone that I think sums up that generation, Jim Carrey. He says this, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. The question is, the answer to what? Is it possible that we have a problem with our definition of greatness and of calling? You see, we all define greatness, don't we, as success, as superiority, as being better than our peers. But the problem is, whenever we taste that or experience it, it always disappoints. Or we feel like we're never able to get there. So what is wrong with our definition of greatness? Because we're all called to greatness. 
We're all called to make a difference. We're all called to be significant. We know because we feel that in our hearts. We want our lives to mean something. Will you be glad to know that they had exactly the same problem 2,000 years ago? So our reading this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew. This is the disciples who followed Jesus talking about greatness. So from verse 17 in chapter 20 of Matthew's Gospel. Now Jesus was going up to Jerusalem and on the way he took the 12 aside and he said to them, we're going to Jerusalem and the Son of Man, that was just a title he gave himself, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and they'll hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and to be flogged and crucified. On the third day, he'll be raised to life. Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, that's James and John, they had this nickname, the Sons of Thunder, because they were always messing things up and they were incredibly angry. The mother of James and John came to Jesus with her sons and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. In Mark's gospel, it's James and John that come to Jesus and ask, I love that in Matthew, it's the mum. It's like, mum, you've been telling me I'm special. You've been telling me I'm destined for great. Could you just tell Jesus that so that he knows that when I get there, we've got to be seated next to him on the throne. Anyway, mum comes up, says to Jesus, can you do me a favor? Which is always irritating when anyone ever says that. It's like, I don't know what you're going to ask. Jesus, very nice. He says, what is it that you want? She says this, the mum of James and John, grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in the kingdom. You don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they heard about James and John trying to get a head start on the good seats once heaven came. They were angry. They were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together knowing this and he said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. What's going on here? Well, the first thing to notice in this passage is that Jesus redefines greatness. He redefines greatness. This is how greatness was perceived back in the day, 2,000 years ago. Verse 25, Jesus called them together. He said this, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them. So this would be in the ruling powers of the time put in place by the Roman Empire or directly delivered by the Roman Empire. And they they were characterized by authority and power and control and superiority and arrogance. That's how they exercise leadership. That's how they exercise their calling over the other people. That's how they exercise the greatness of the Roman Empire. It's good to know nothing has changed in 2,000 years. Verse 26, Jesus totally flips it on its head. He says this, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Look at the language Jesus is using there. Servant, slave, slave submission, give your life, ransom. 
This is a radically different definition of greatness to that of the world, to that that we're used to today. You see, he's done a switch there, hasn't he? Greatness, according to the world's values, according to the world's values back then, 2,000 years ago, greatness means that you can get anyone to do anything for you. You can make other people slaves for you. If you have influence and power and greatness, then everyone becomes your minion. See how he flips this on its head. He says, in the kingdom, greatness is doing anything for anyone. Completely the opposite. This is what theologians call the upside-downness of the kingdom. It's the upside-down kingdom of God. It takes the cultural values of the time and it totally flips it on its head. First thing to notice, Jesus redefines greatness. Second thing to notice, the life of Jesus is the ultimate expression of what this redefinition of greatness looks like. And it's not pretty. Verse 18, we're going up to Jerusalem and... The Son of Man, Jesus says, which is himself, will be delivered over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death. Now remember, Jesus is a rabbi. He's a good Jew. He was brilliant at being it. He was so good, people flocked to him to hear his teaching on the Old Testament law. And he's predicting, this is for the third time, by the way, in the Gospels. He's saying to his disciples, these guys who are our elders, who are our spiritual leaders, they are gonna hand me over for condemnation and for death. And then he says, they'll hand him over to the Gentiles, the Roman Empire. I'll be mocked and flogged and crucified. For Jesus, greatness looks like death. That is quite the redefinition. Third thing to notice, if that's not bad enough, if as followers of Jesus, we also want to be truly great, if we want greatness in the kingdom of God, then we have to walk a similar path. Verse 22, you don't know what you're asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm about to drink? We can, James and John. They put the mother aside by then. James and John answered, Jesus said to them, you will indeed drink from my cup. Now I give James and John a bad time there, but they were actually able to follow through on the calling. You see, the disciples were beginning to get a sense of what Jesus was talking about when he kept talking about suffering and persecution and death and resurrection. Until that point, they didn't really understand, but by the third time, they were beginning to understand, and the reference to cup there would have helped them because they would have known as good Jews, knowing their Hebraic scripture, that cup represents God's final judgment on evil. And so therefore included and involves suffering and persecution. So when Jesus is saying, I'm going to drink this cup so that I can save the world, you're going to have to drink it also. They kind of knew what was going on. And the reality is James suffered as a martyr. We know from Acts 12 that he was killed for his faith in Jesus. John was suffered terribly, persecuted. He was afflicted. He ended up being um, sent to this Pathos, island of Pathos where he was captured in the mines. He was completely done in in his faith. He lived until a ripe old age, but he had a horrible time as a result of his faith in Jesus. The point is greatness as defined by Jesus comes at a cost, and the cost isn't minor. In fact, the cost is so high that you could be forgiven for thinking that this isn't greatness at all. This is nonsense. This is foolishness. You'd have to be stupid to follow Jesus into this path, into this calling. What about this for a strapline for a movement? Follow me and die in your service to other people. Not the best way to start a movement, is it? So the real question is this, how is it that the disciples actually managed to follow through on this calling, on this purpose, on this greatness? 
How is it that they managed to convince thousands of other people to do exactly the same? How is it that in the world today, we know there's probably about 2.1 billion people who would also say they're followers of Jesus? What are we missing here about this definition of greatness? And the only conclusion I can make when I read all this, when I read about the teaching of Jesus, when you look at the Gospels for what they really say, for what Jesus really says, the only conclusion I can make is this. It is not about you. It's not about me. It's not about our own fancy little gift that if only the world could possibly see how great we are, we'd find our true calling. I almost didn't use this passage because I wanted to do a talk on encouraging each other. I don't know how encouraged you feel right now. But um, I thought, okay, finding your calling, small groups, it's about encouraging each other into your calling. So I thought I'd use this passage. And then as I was reading this passage, it hit me like a ton of bricks. And rather than do a different talk, which is what I would normally do, I thought I better probably should do this talk. Um, And the issue we have is we have a problem in Western Christianity because we've accidentally adopted a definition of greatness that's exactly the same as the definition of greatness in the world. I read a fascinating article in The Telegraph a while back that um, was talking about the most popular Bible verses in the UK. Apparently, they track the most popular verses over time. And the, the, the article in The Telegraph was saying the most popular verse in the UK has just recently changed. This was about six months ago. So this year, it changed. And previously, the most popular verse searched for online, looked for on Bible Gateway, used on the app on our phone, the most popular verse by far was John 3.16. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Now that was the most popular. So what's the most popular now? Well, it's completely flipped on its head. It's Jeremiah 29. It's this, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, plans to give you a hope and a future. Can you see the switch that's happened there? It's gone from being about God about all that he's done for us, his love for us so that we can follow him and reveal his love to the world, to being about us, our calling, our prosperity, quoted way out of, completely out of context. It was about the nation of Israel. And by the way, the nation of Israel were blessed to be a blessing. That is the problem with the entire Old Testament. The point of the nation of Israel, the Abrahamic promise, was that they were to be blessed by God so that they could bless the surrounding nations. What happened instead was Israel got really good at putting walls around their blessing, really good at stopping other people from getting the blessing, and therefore they died as a result. They became subject to the law, and it all unraveled. The whole point of that Abrahamic blessing was they were supposed to be giving it away. Is it possible we have a similar problem in our version of Christianity? Clearly something's gone off track when it comes to greatness and calling. So how do we get it back? This is what Jesus says, verse 28. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, he gave his life as a ransom for many. Here's the point. There's a purpose behind the death of Jesus that holds the key to true greatness. There's a purpose behind the death of Jesus that holds the key to true significance, to true calling. 
A ransom was the same then as it is today. It's money paid to get freedom, basically. So someone's captive, you pay money to get them out of captivity. Now, in this analogy, Jesus' life is the money. So the question for us is, who are the captives? What's captive? Well, the answer of the New Testament is we are captive. Humanity is captive. Why are we captive? Because of sin. The best definition I've ever heard of, sin, we often misinterpret it as all about morality all the time. The best definition of sin is a life turned in on itself. A life where we've made it all about me, myself, and I. A life where our calling, where our purpose is all about our own glorification as opposed to blessing other people. Sin is the problem. And the problem with sin is it captives, it keeps us captive, it imprisons us, it stops us from living life in all its fullness. We become consumed with it. We start to live a life hell-bent on achieving greatness as defined by success and superiority. It's a life that really costs us very little, but costs those people that tend to come against it or stop us from achieving it a lot. It's what leads to wars and conflicts and anxiety and depression and broken hearts and emptiness and meaninglessness. Jesus says this, about it. He says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. He's talking about religion there, by the way. So, so often when we hear talks like this about it being about other people, not about ourselves, we fall into the trap of religion. Religion says, if we can just do good the whole time, then we're going to be okay. We're going to get saved. That's completely the opposite to the gospel. The point of the gospel is that Jesus has already saved us and therefore we are blessed to be a blessing to others. That's the point, not that we need to attain the blessing ourselves. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. And then he says, whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? See, there's a deeper level of greatness and significance and meaning on offer from Jesus here, and it really doesn't disappoint. Here's what James and John and Jesus obviously knew, and Peter and all the early Christians and those who have genuinely followed Jesus in their life knew. They knew this, you can live the most successful, the most comfortable, the greatest life according to the world's definition of greatness, but you can still feel dead inside. You feel like you've lost your soul. Why? Because we're created for meaning beyond our own fulfillment. We're created to bless. We've been blessed so that we can be a blessing. So what are we supposed to do about it? Well, Jesus says this, 26, instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. The message of this passage is clear. If we want to become great, if we want true significance, if we want true meaning in our life, then our calling is to follow Jesus. And if we really follow Jesus, if we really read about the life of Jesus and apply it to our lives, if we're genuinely asking him, Lord, what is it that I can do to to honor you, to glorify you, to follow you, then we'll find out pretty quickly that it has very little to do with our own status and pride and everything to do with blessing and serving other people around us. We're blessed to be a blessing. 
how does that work in terms of calling? So let's just get practical for a second. Here's three questions I like to ask people when they're struggling about calling, they're struggling about what they're supposed to be doing with their time. First question is this, what need in front of you are you passionate about solving? What currently around you in your immediate vicinity needs the blessing of God? Or put it like this, as Christians, you're supposed to bring heaven to earth. You're supposed to participate in this process of heaven coming to the earth, of earth becoming more like heaven. What around you doesn't feel like heaven? Doesn't take long to find it. You're called to bless that. You're called to respond to that immediate need. Second question, related, what are you good at? We are uniquely gifted. When you read um, the text in the Bible about calling, about who we're created to be, you realize that there's the point of the church is that we're to be unified in mission in our diversity. So every single one of us here in this room has different callings, different giftings, different things that we contribute to the whole. The difference is when you read passages like Ephesians 5 where it talks about the body, it's so that the body can be built up and become mature and be blessed. It's not about us. And so therefore, what we normally do is we put question two as question number one, which means that we fall into the trap of making it about ourselves. If we can switch one and two, then we're probably onto a good thing. If we can say to ourselves, what is the immediate need around us? Not what is gonna be the need in 10 years time that our gifting can bless later on. And if only God could possibly support us in it, it will become great and will become great in the process. What is the immediate need right in our vicinity right now that we can respond to? And second question, am I gifted? Am I I able to meet that need and see it change in the name of Jesus and in the power of the Holy Spirit? Flip the two questions around. Third question, what opportunities seem to be opening up? This is one of the ways we only do what we see our father doing. So when Jesus says, it's a shocking statement, I only do what I see my father doing, which seems strange. Our biggest mistake is that we start something that we think is a good idea, usually based on our own giftings or warped versions of how great we are, and then we ask God to bless it. The difference with Jesus is he had his eyes open, he was trying to see what God was already doing, and he went and blessed that. That's the way we follow the way of the kingdom, because the truth is, God is going to do it anyway. He's at work all around us. He's going to use the church, but the church members he's really going to use are the church members that are open to his leading, because the whole point is, we're following Jesus. He's not following us and our calling and our gifting. We're following him. What opportunities seem to be opening up around us? And here's the point in terms of villages. We work all three of those things out in community. It's impossible to know the needs around us if we're in isolation. It's impossible to know the things going on around us that are like hell rather than heaven, that if, if we're just doing things on our own, cocooned in, and we're not really allowing ourselves to be radically in community. Second question, what are we good at? The best way of knowing what you're good at is often asking what other people think you're good at. This is how people get in trouble when they think that they can sing because they sing on their own in their bedroom the whole time and then they end up on stage and then thousands of people realize that they really can't sing and then they realize that it's painful to watch. This is why we do this in community. Other people will start pointing it out. As we encourage each other, we will start to realize that we're particularly gifted at particular things and that other people don't seem to have that same gifting. And therefore, if we're able to contribute to the whole and encourage each other and build up the church, then we're on to a good thing. It's gonna be fun. And then the third thing, done in community, done in villages. Doors open up as we speak to people about what we feel like God's doing in our lives. It's no good staying at home and saying, I know I have a gift 
for healing animals. It's a really important gift, and I've had it all my life. And Lord, I just really need you to open the door to a veterinary clinic near me so that I can go and do it. It just came into my head. Sorry, it's a terrible example. What is going on in there? Um, you have to go to the vet, and you have to open the door, test the door. It, this is stupid. Forget that example. Human need, humans, not animals. You have to go to the place where there's need and you have to ask them if they need help in that particular place. What you'll find is if you're on the money, if you're being led by the Holy Spirit, doors will start to fling open and you'll start to see God do incredible things. We do it in community. Final story and then we'll pray. In my previous church, we were friends with a guy called Daniel who ran a charity in Uganda and we developed a brilliant relationship with this guy and his ministry out there and the churches that he supported. And his charity started when um, he adopted, him and his wife adopted a young child in their village who had been abandoned by his abusive parents. So um, the boy's abused over a long period of time. The parents finally have enough to throw him out. And so Daniel and his wife take him in. Before long, they realized that this was a common problem in their village and ended up within that year adopting another nine in their village. And along with their two biological kids, they couldn't afford to send all of these children to school. So instead of kind of just leaving them to their own devices, they decided they were going to build a school in their village. And it was convenient because Daniel, his job, his trade was building bricks. And so he literally started baking the bricks in order to be able to build the school that his children and his adoptive children could go to. Once they'd finished the school, this school became incredibly popular because they would send kids from all around the surrounding area because it was the only school in the area that operated on a pay-as-you-earn basis. So I don't care if you can't afford this, you can come anyway, just give what you have. And so therefore, understandably, the school started blossoming, became absolutely huge. What they then realized was the problem they had in their village was the same as the problem in other villages. And what would happen is parents would drop their kids off at the start of term and never come to pick them up again. And so they built an orphanage. Daniel baked the bricks himself, genuinely literally built an orphanage for all the children that started pouring into their village. A number of years later, as they started going through the school, they realized that these kids were unprepared for the real world, real world out there in terms of getting a job. And so last I heard, and this was about a year ago, they're building a vocational school to give the kids trades so that they can go out and get jobs. And guess who's building the bricks for the vocational school? I have no doubt that when we get to heaven... And we see Jesus seated on his throne. I have no doubt that Daniel is going to be up there with him. Because he's given his life to the service of others. Let's stand and we're going to pray.